It's really great to have you joining us here today, whether you're here in a comfortable seat that you've uh, imprinted yourself on for months and months, uh, or are here for the very first time, it is a real pleasure to be here. We're starting an amazing new series. I can't think of a book of the Bible that I think is more timely for our particular era, this season in American life, and I hope for your own personal life, than the book of Daniel we're going to be looking at in this uh, next several weeks. And I want to encourage you that next week we're going to be looking at the second chapter of the book of Daniel. And if you um, can make some time to read your way through the whole second chapter of Daniel during the week ahead, you're going to get even more out of the experience when we come together. I'm going to be zeroing in today on the very first chapter. And uh, if it's helpful for you to take out your phone and open up to your Bible version there, uh, welcome to do that or your own uh, physical copy of the scriptures, it will be uh, maybe easier to follow along in the story. Uh, and for those of you who don't know me, my name is Dan, and I serve as one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm just thrilled to be here and just want to invite us to pray together before we jump in uh, to our study. Lord, thank you so much already for what you've been doing and saying and in uh, our hearts as we've worshipped you today, as we've opened our hearts to you, as we've caught a glimpse again of, of your goodness, your grace, and your glory. We thank you for bringing us here to this place. And we pray that you will help us to be filled today with, with even one idea, one principle that will plant so deeply in us that it will bear great fruit as we go out into the world in the days to come. So have your way with us, we pray. Speak to us now, uh, for we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, you know, this past summer I was away uh, for a couple of months, and uh, one of the things that I got a chance to do was to go and hang out with my extended family uh, at a uh, resort in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. And we had uh, my father, my stepmother, and all of my siblings. I've got five siblings and a bunch of their kids and, and a great aunt and just a bunch of, of extended folks. And I was struck by the fact that I belong to a really cool family. I mean, some of them are weird. I'll be honest with you about that. But it's a cool assembly of people with different gifts and uh, capacities who are out there in the world doing stuff that matters, really helping uh, to advance human flourishing in various ways. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm, I'm really happy to be a member of the Meyer family. For the all the hard frictional stuff that goes on, the overwhelming joy of being part of this family just struck me in a fresh way. You know, family identity can, can make a difference in the course of our life. Uh, a family name, for example, can... Uh, be, in some cases, an actual admission ticket to, to power or influence or to relationships that you might not ever have in any other way. Uh, a family name can symbolize a whole raft of particular values or ways of, of being in the world that you are inspired to or feel some personal compu compulsion to try and live into or try to live uh, up to. I think in this regard of the wonderful story of the eight-year-old daughter of William Howard Taft III, who, who once remarked with her chest all puffed out, my great 
great-grandfather, my great-grandfather was president of the United States, she said, and my grandfather was senator from Ohio, she said, and my father is ambassador to Ireland, she said, and I am a brownie. <laughs> and I just love that. I just love that she sensed that she was part of a line of people that were going to make a difference in this world. Her family name mattered to her. Well, this month I want to introduce you to a member of your family. Uh, and, and I'm hoping that as you get to know this member of your family, it's going to matter for you in a personal way. And the individual I'm going to introduce to you is simply the biblical character we know as Daniel. He's actually the guy after which my parents named me. Uh, it wasn't a name in our family. It was a name from the biblical family that, that they chose. And Daniel is, in a very real way, a spiritual forebearer to all of us. He's, if we're a follower of Jesus, he's part of our family lineage. And he has a lot to teach us about what it means to live our lives with clarity and courage, with what I'm calling a lion heart, in the midst of a world that is often pulling at us in directions that aren't so good for our health and which compromise our ability to be influencers for God's kingdom in the world. I don't know how many of you have hung out at the beach very much. Maybe you did this this past summer. Uh, raise your hand if you have ever seen a sandcastle on the beach that got obliterated by a wave. You know, what, you know the picture? One second... It's standing there proud and beautiful, and the next second, boom, it's just been pummeled, and it's washed away. Well, if you had been there uh, in 605 B.C., in the, in, the, in the land of Palestine, you would have witnessed in September of that year a wave that swept across the landscape and obliterated the culture as it had been. It was then that the armies of the great superpower known as Babylon swept southward through Syria into Palestine, obliterating the Jewish nation and adding the remnants of that nation to its collection of tributary states. The Bible describes the events in Daniel chapter 1 in these terms. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Judah, or Babylon rather, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord, this is the key part, and the Lord God delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. Now the question has to arise, why did God do that? Why would God take um, his most favored nation and actually hand it over purposely to a pagan nation. Now to get at the answer to that question, you have to understand that for nearly 500 years before this particular moment, the chosen people had been the dozen people in almost all of the ways that really mattered to God. Uh, they had maintained a superficial kind of religiosity or piety to, to their culture, but they were violating God's laws, his actual instructions, in almost every conceivable way. They, they had ignored, for example, the instructions that God gave them for caring for the creation. God had given them really uh, very, very clear 
uh, instructions about allowing the land to lie fallow, unused, every seven years, so you didn't burn up the earth. You didn't overwork the earth, but the people of Israel had ignored that. And environmental instruction, we should remember this, displeases God. Uh, Secondly, the Lord had commanded that every 50 years, there was to be a jubilee year declared. And in that jubilee year, uh, they were to take um, uh, all of the debts uh, of the poor that had piled up over those 50 years, and they were to wipe them away. Uh, Because God hates despair. God does not like to see people who have gotten under a load that's too heavy to bear, that they can't ever work themselves out from. God doesn't want to see a structure built up that, that, that has people at the bottom with no chance of bootstrapping themselves, really, of ever getting out of that. But the nation of Israel had completely abandoned the Jubilee Law. They, they just ignored it. Uh, as if God had never actually given that instruction. And there was now a gigantic gulf between the wealthy and the very poor, and the poor had no chance of escaping that condition. God had also commanded that the people of Israel were to care for widows and orphans. They, They would recognize vulnerable people, and they were to make it their business to make sure that the vulnerable people had friends and support. But Israel had given very little attention to that, just nominal, occasional almsgiving attention to that. And God had also said that they were not to have other gods. They were not to make graven images that became more important to them than the real God. But Israel had also adopted other religious traditions, all kinds of kind of a buffet of spiritualities, and they had lots of idols. They were bowing down to and serving all kinds of 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 objects um, that they had elevated to an importance over their worship and service of God. For nearly 500 years, God had shown unbelievable patience with this arrangement. Uh, He had watched this slide happening uh, and had allowed time for Israel to come to its senses. Uh, As Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love is patient and kind. God had sent some prophets to Israel during this period of time. He had sent them some minor calamities to try and uh, call them back to greater integrity and a sense of their identity with him. But even God does not turn his cheek forever. And that's really important to remember. Just because one has has experienced a lot of grace, a lot of patience for a very long time, does not mean that God might, might not suddenly decide, okay, enough is enough. And for the northern kingdom of Israel, God's patience ran out in the year 722 B.C. You need to understand that Palestine was divided into a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. And for the northern kingdom of Israel, the patient ran ran out in 722 when God allowed the nation of Assyria, we studied them during our Jonah series last year at this time, a very brutal, tough, militaristic nation. He allowed that nation to be, and I quote, the rod of his judgment. He took that nation and picked it up and used it like a stick to, to judge Israel for what they had done or not done. And, and Assyria comes sweeping in, and they utterly destroy, like that wave that I was describing earlier, they destroy 
the, the whole nation, the northern kingdom of Israel, they, they ransack and, and lay to, to the ground the, the city of Samaria, which was the northern kingdom's uh, capital, and they took all of the leading citizens of the, of the country that they had not killed, that they took them off and enslaved, enslaved them and used them in their various uh, work projects. So it was a little bit like that... Um, that Amazon Prime show, Man in the High Castle, don't know if any of you have ever seen it, uh, which sort of pictures uh, that in that, an alternative history in which the United States actually loses World War II because the Nazis get the atom bomb first and they are able to apply it and, and they take over the United States, they destroy Washington completely and they impose uh, their will on America, and they enslave all of its citizens. This is the picture of what happened in the northern kingdom, only it wasn't a television show. It happened. This alternative history happened. Now, you'd think that if something like that happened up in Michigan, the folks of, uh, those of us who live down here in Illinois would get nervous. You know, we would wake up. We would start to wonder, oh, my gosh, could this happen here? And for a moment, the folks in the southern kingdom we called Judah did sort of stir. And, and there was a king in that time by the name of Josiah in the south who, who stumbled across during a renovation of the great temple of Jerusalem an ancient manuscript that was hidden back in, in the stones, behind some stones. And the manuscript was of the book of Deuteronomy, the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, the law of Moses. And Josiah read the manuscript and suddenly realized how far out of alignment his people were with what God had actually called them to be and do. And so Josiah leads this massive reform movement in Judah. And, and for a season of time, the nation turns back towards God and starts to live into some of these prescriptions for, for national flourishing that, that I was describing earlier. But then Josiah goes out into battle and tragically is killed. Just as he's really having a big influence, the nation loses this incredible charismatic visionary leader. And it's not very long before the nation drifts back into all of these bad practices again. Uh, God again doesn't give up. He sends prophets. And people like Jeremiah come along, the great prophet Jeremiah. And they, they say, hey, listen, if we don't act fast, if we don't change our ways, judgment is imminent unless repentance is immediate. That's what Jeremiah basically says. But the majority of the people of the nation, they say effectively, oh, that couldn't happen here. Oh, no, no, no. God, <laughs> Jeremiah, God would never let happen what happened over there. Here, we are the chosen people. I mean, we have got his temple right over there in Jerusalem. We are a city on the hill. We are a light to the nations. We've got God's name on our money. I mean, nothing that awful could possibly happen to us. But here's the first practical lesson I want to lift out of, of the Bible for us today. You cannot continually disobey God without ultimately losing. You cannot continually disobey God. A nation can't, I can't, you can't, without ultimately losing. The consequences may not come today. 
They may not be evident on the horizon of tomorrow. You may even enjoy a season of illusory prosperity. Uh, ever, I don't know if you ever tried this, but if you, you go out into a garden and you, uh, you cut the stalk of a, some beautiful tulips and then you put them in a, in a vase, they will last for a while. But the clock is ticking. When a people or a person gets cut off from their roots, is separated from God and the source of, of life that he is, it's only a time before the, the, the bloom begins to wither and whether that's an individual or a nation, that entity will wind up as a loser if they're cut off and disobedient toward God. It's a law of the universe. It's a law of the universe. Well, the long arm of that law stretched out and exacted judgment on the southern kingdom uh, beginning in 605 B.C. The same kind of thing that had happened in the northern kingdom now happens uh, in 60, starts to happen in 605, and over the next 20 years, another major superpower, this time the biggest one, uh, it's Babylon, they, uh, they come sweeping in, and their, their king, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, systematically strips Judah of all of its best resources. He takes its wealth, he takes its sacred worship vessels from the temple in Jerusalem. And eventually in 586, he says, hey, I, I think I'll take even the stones of the temple. He took the stones with which the great temple had been built and carted them off to be used in his other projects. And worst of all, Nebuchadnezzar stole Judah's heart and mind. In, in a succession of three great deportations, Nebuchadnezzar surgically removed the top talent of that nation and added it to his own administration. And Daniel chapter 1, if you go back and read this, tells us exactly how he did it. Nebuchadnezzar had a vice president of human resources, of sorts, by the, guy, by the name of Ashpenaz. And Ashpenaz came up with this like brilliant uh, indoctrination plan. And what he did was, he went out in search of the physically finest and intellectually best talent amongst the young people of, of Judah and, and developed this recruitment program or this indoctrination program aimed at them. It was a three-step process. Step one involved giving them all a full scholarship to Chaldean University. Now, Chaldea is another name for Babylon. He, he, gave a, he, he invited them right in at no cost to them into the university, uh, Babylon's top college. And there in that heady environment, they would be steeped in Babylonian language and philosophy and religion and ways of, of doing life. It would be enormously powerful upon them. Step two was to offer them a free meal ticket to the rich menu that was served at the table of the king that these young people would actually get to eat a diet, a royal diet. And even back then, Nebuchadnezzar knew that one of the very fastest and best ways to a young person's uh, head and heart was through their stomach, especially if you're dealing with young men. And they were aimed at that particular group of people. Step three was to give these people, these re recruits potentially, new names. To give them new names. And for the vast majority of the young Jews that were, had been deported over to Babylon, the vast majority of these guys, for them, the program worked. 
it was enormously effective. I mean, just picture yourself and put yourself in the place of one of those deportees at the time. You know, you're thinking, okay, I, I, I've been, this doesn't look good. I, I'm going to spend the rest of my life, you know, pounding boulders into pebbles for the king's roadwork projects. And then somebody comes along as you're slaving uh, over a hot sledgehammer for hours. And they come along and they see you and they pull you out of line. And they say, whoa, you're way too talented to be doing this kind of thing. I mean, no, I mean, come on. I, look at those blisters. I'm so sorry. We've made a mistake here. Uh, we would like you to join our executive recruitment program. How are you going to react? You're going to worry all that much that this special education you're about to get might just replace your entire worldview, the, the, the traditions you've been raised in as, as a Jewish young person? Are you going to be concerned about that at that particular moment? How are you going to weigh that choice? And then if you've been marched hundreds and hundreds of miles, as these young guys were, in a slave train, you know, chained to the person in front of you, like Daniel and his friends definitely were, all the way from Jerusalem to Babylon, and someone points to you while you're there in the bread and water line and says, oh, there's been a mistake. You shouldn't be in that line. You come over here. You've got potential. We would like you to sit at this table instead. Would you like some filet mignon? Have you tried the Cabernet? How are you going to respond to that? How much is it going to really bother you that this food that you are now being offered had been part of an offering to idols before it got to that table? How, how much is that going to challenge you even though you were taught that you were not to do anything that had to do with idols. Um, and if you, like Daniel and these other guys, had been separated from your home and your kinfolk for quite a while, and you've been brought to a land where you know pretty much nobody, and then somebody comes up and puts an arm around your shoulder and says, wow, you know, we've been watching you. We've been watching you. There's something about you we really like. Um, we, we, in fact, we would like you to, to be part of our family now. It, only there's this one problem. You know that Jewish name you have? It's hard to pronounce for the we Babylonians. So we're just going to give you a new name. At the thought of, of having a place of belonging and, and inclusion like that as a young person, you know, is it going to... How much is it going to bother you that the new name, the nickname they're giving you now is actually the name of one of the pagan gods? In Daniel's case, the name they gave him was Belteshazzar, which, which literally means um, the one whom Bel, the pagan god Bel, favors. How much is that going to stop you? How is that going to influence you? I, you know, I, I, I ask these questions, um, and I, I ponder this with you just simply because I think this is actually not unlike what's going on for almost all of us every single day in our world today. Um, at least I will confess, this is what it feels like for me. 
I feel like I live in Babylon. And I feel like I, I have been here a long time, certainly since I went to college. Um, I ha- I've been surrounded by this enormously powerful, dominant culture that has a set of views and traditions and, and, and gods, in a sense, that are very different than, than, the, than the way of Jesus at the core or, or the way of the kingdom of God at the core. And, and, it, and, and I find myself in the middle of this trying to navigate my way, uh, trying to help my family members navigate their way too, especially my kids. I don't try and help my wife navigate too much because I haven't found that works. Um, <laughs> she is running the marathon as we speak. Uh, I'm proud of, proud, very proud of her. Um, but in all seriousness, the... Um, you know, I, I will spend a lot of my hours, and I have, again, since college days, reading the Babylonian literature. I mean, I can't tell you how much of my time is spent trying to keep up with the Babylonian literature and the news and the events and all of the, the media of our time. Uh, and, I, and, and even though this, this kind of stuff that I'm, I'm reading and occupying myself with in this university of life is, is very, very different and is calling me to a worldview that has no moral absolutes and, and thinks that there are no real problems that a little more education and technology can't fix, you know, I'm tempted to keep being instructed by it. Uh, I, I tell myself that I can hold on to a, a spiritual health and vitality while I am munching daily on a on a media-provided diet of, of what really is kind of junk food. I mean, I can't believe the, the statistics and the, the factoids I store about celebrities in my head. Uh, you know, how much of my gray matter hard disk is being filled with this stuff? And, and I, I compare that with the amount of time I'm spending uh, reading God's word uh, or, or the great thinkers of history that God has used and, and raised up. Uh, and I find myself, as I eat this junk food, I just, I begin more and more, in a sense, I'm unconsciously bowing to the, to the idols of celebrity and power and, and wealth, you know? I just, I'm just, I become a groupie of those things in some ways. Um, and I tell myself, and I tell other people, that my primary identity is I'm a Christian. I'm a, I'm a Jesus follower, while sort of secretly enjoying it when they call me megachurch pastor or Ivy Leaguer, right? Uh, as if these other things don't actually compete with the primary identity of being a follower of Christ. And, and I make these little compromises, I do. These, I, I, I buy into these big little lies in a way, and, and maybe you do too, as if they had no real cost. As if they hadn't no real cost. But is that true? Is that really true? Before there was a, um, a game show called Jeopardy. I think you've heard of that one, right? Um, before there w- was a, a, a person like Ken Jennings or James Holtzauer, these amazing winners of Jeopardy that became household names, uh, there was a, a television show, and actually a radio show, called Quiz Show, and um, actually, I don't think that was the name. There was another, it was 21. The name of the show was 21, and there was a remarkably well-known winner of that 
a serial winner of that by the name of Charles Van Doren Jr. And in the Hollywood movie that tells um, the story, and that movie is called Quiz Show, uh, we meet Charles Van Doren as he's discovering something crucial about his identity and about the nature of integrity. And in this particular scene, um, Charlie is trying to explain to his father, who's an esteemed university professor, how he managed to become rich and a national celebrity and lining the pockets of the TV station or the radio station and, and the uh, sponsors by participating in what was basically an answer-rigging scheme. An answer-rigging scheme. And, and this is how Charlie describes it. It, becomes, it begins very innocently. You know, they just gave me the answers. They just gave me the answers. Uh, well, no, 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 they, they, they just asked me questions that they knew I knew the answers to. So I just, I, I, I just did that. Oh, well, actually, I, I still didn't actually want them to give me the answers, so I just had them give me the questions. Then I would go look up the answers as if, well, I guess as if that were any different. Well... We ran through those in a couple of weeks, Dad, and then I just, well, I just didn't have the time to keep researching, and finally it just seemed so silly, so... And the dad interrupts, and he says, they gave you all that money to answer questions they knew you knew? Now that's inflation. Son says, Dad, you're not being very helpful. I'm sorry, Charlie, I'm an old man. And this is all a little difficult for me to comprehend. It's just television, Dad. It's just television. You make it sound like you didn't have a choice. You make it sound that way. What was I supposed to do, says Charlie? Disillusion the whole nation? But you took the money. Yes, I know. I took the money. Is that what this was all about, his father says? I don't know. It was a quiz show, Charlie. At that point, the son just rolls his eyes in exasperation, and he raises his voice. Look, Dad, it was my own name that was a stake, okay? It was my own name. And at this moment, the father loses it. And he gazes at his son with this look of such pained love and righteous anger. And he says, says in tones that absolutely shake the walls of the empty lecture hall in which this interchange is going on. And he says to him, what you seem to have forgotten, son, is that your name is first my name. It's my name. We forget, I think, sometimes that we have a name, we who call ourselves Christians, we have a name, and it belongs to Christ. It belongs first and foremost to our Heavenly Father. We are connected to someone whose good name, whose identity, whose purposes cover us and is affected by our behavior and whose reputation actually is impacted by the choices that we make. And the amazing thing about this book we're reading this month is that we are encountering somebody who in the midst of the very powerful dominant culture of his day 
remembers his name, remembers who he is. Even in the midst of Babylon, this teenager, and keep in mind, that's all Daniel was. He was a teenager. He could not forget that he shared his heavenly father's name. Actually, that's literally true. The, the name Daniel has at the very end of it this little appendage, E-L, which is actually a shorthand for the word in Hebrew, Elohim, which means the name of God. The name of God was in Daniel's name. And because the word L at the end is so small, you could understand why Daniel might have taken it a little less seriously than he did. It would have been a very small concession, apparently, to eat a little bit of, the, of those, that food that had been offered to idols, just like it's a very little aberration, really, from the truth when we tell a lie, when we, when we fudge on our taxes. Um, it's only a small variance from love to run somebody down behind their back or to look with lust upon somebody else's Spouse, it's only a tiny sidestep from grace to hold a grudge against somebody who is obnoxious. It's only a minuscule shift from integrity to live by the ethics of what other people are doing instead of the ethics of the kingdom of God. It's only a wee diversion, really, to go from getting the questions ahead of time to getting the answers ahead of time. It's only a little thing from preparing your kid to take the SAT to paying somebody to change the score. It's a little thing. Like Charlie in the movie, I think we, we have these ways of excusing these diversions. We want to say to God, look, Dad, it's... It's not such a big deal. I mean, other people do this sort of thing. Come on, can we not talk about all the things I do right? Can we not make that the focus? But here is a second very important principle from the life of Daniel. That Hebrew kid understood that all obedience and victory in the big tasks of life begins with total obedience in the small tasks of life. You don't go out and run 26.2 miles just then, just now. You go out and you start by running half a mile. And you commit yourself and you build the discipline to be obedient and faithful and stay on track for the short distance. And one day that gives you the ability to go the long distance. Partial obedience doesn't work. You can't run I'll, run, I'll run today's workout. I won't run tomorrow's, or I won't run it all the way. Partial obedience to a perfectly holy God is actually still disobedience. And God asks for total obedience. This is, this is a, a newsflash, because this doesn't get said bluntly anymore. God asks actually for total obedience. Because even a slight variation from integrity or loyalty or kindness reflects not just upon you and me, but upon the Father's name. Just a slight variation can lead to a great difference over time. Just a slight uh, variation can keep us from fulfilling our potential, from going the distance, from crossing the finish line, as God wants us to be able to do. 
That is why Daniel turned the surf and turf down. He did it knowing that such an act was probably going to put his place at Babylon, Babylonian University, if not the place of his, of his head on his neck at severe risk. He took that chance. What gave him the courage? What gave him the courage to do that? And you're going to see a lot more courage from him in the days to come. What did that? I suspect it was because Daniel knew that as powerful as Nebuchadnezzar was, as prevalent as were the values of this dominant culture in Babylon, as persuasive as the Chaldean world was, in the end, there is actually only one true judge of success, significance, survival. There's only one true judge that matters, and that is God. And, and, and actually, in Daniel's name was also a reminder of that truth. Yeah, I talked about the L part, but the, the Danny part, it, really, it literally means um, judge. And the name together totally means God is my judge. He is the one person for whom I'm going to live my life. The psalmist puts it this way, for not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation. It's not from those places come that which lifts up a human life ultimately. But God is the judge. He puts down one, he exalts another. And that I think is the third principle, it's the last one I'm going to touch on today, that is really critical to take from Daniel's life. Just as there is no way to disobey God and not in the end find yourself ultimately losing, there is no way, this is the principle, there is no way that you can obey God, especially when you're willing to do it in the little things, and not in the end wind up a winner. Now, don't get me wrong on this. I'm not saying it's going to all be roses with no thorns. Uh, we know that not to be true. Again, you ain't going to run a marathon without struggling at times. Uh, that's just the nature of things. Uh, and as we're going to see in Daniel's story, when we unwind it in the days ahead, Daniel went to some very tough and difficult kinds of places. It was like this also for the one who Scripture says, for the joy set before him endured the cross. It was not an easy walk for Jesus, not an easy race for him either, being obedient to the Father's calling. But let's remember that because of Christ's obedience, Paul tells us in his letter to the Philippians, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me say it again. There is no way to obey God and not in the end wind up a winner. Where do you want to wind up? How do you want to wind up? What steps are you prepared to take to get there? Let me just leave you as we go this morning with a question. Is there some area of your life where you need to hear, believe, and act on that promise and commit yourself more fully to obeying his calling versus the clamoring call of this world. Maybe God is calling you to manage your time differently than you've been managing it. 
Perhaps he's asking you to set aside some of that Babylonian literature and immerse yourself more fully in his word. Perhaps God is, is commanding you to actually give your marriage more investment than you've been giving it. Or, or to make one more heartfelt effort to try and patch up that broken relationship that you've got maybe with a child or, or a sibling or a parent or an estranged colleague or, or a friend. Perhaps God is calling you to invest more time in your family or to clean up your business dealings in some way or, to, or to, to wipe away some of that stuff you've been looking at on the internet or, or, or to share your faith with somebody uh, near to you. I, I don't know. I don't know what his call to you is specifically. But this much I do know. No matter how risky and difficult obedience looks, no matter how big the sacrifice that is required to do what God is asking is, if you will remember your name, if you'll remember who you are and, and, and whose you are, if you'll remember that and resolve to be totally obedient as much as you know how in even the little things, then in the end, you will not lose you will not lose. Please pray with me. Our Lord and God, as we go out into this world, as we re-enter the swirl of this enormously powerful culture, help us to remember who we are. Fill us with clarity about that. Give us, by your Holy Spirit, the courage to make choices that honor you and advance your purposes above all. And in the process, Lord, of serving you this way, exalt us, God. I don't mean puff up our pride, but lift us into places where we can have an even greater influence for your sake. For this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.